This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Continental Breakfast. Are you in search of the world's greasiest sausage patty? Try a Continental Breakfast today. Welcome to episode 125 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we'll be talking about the DJ Basin. Don't worry, that stands for Denver Julesburg, not Disc Jockey. You couldn't pay me to go near a basin full of annoying people. The Denver Julesburg Basin is an oil and gas formation centered in eastern Colorado, but extends into southeast Wyoming, western Nebraska, and western Kansas. The oil and gas from the Denver Julesburg Basin has the potential to emit 5.9 billion tons of carbon dioxide over its entire lifetime. Don't know what a carbon bomb is? This is our 12th episode on them, so if you haven't, be sure to check out the other 11 episodes. They're the bomb, and we are not going to keep explaining them for the slackers in the room. Just kidding, of course we are. Carbon bombs are oil and gas projects where if all the resources were to be extracted and burned, they would emit over 1 billion tons of carbon dioxide. That's like, not a good amount of carbon dioxide. Last year, The Guardian put out an investigative report that found 195 planned carbon bombs around the world, which together could emit 646 billion tons of carbon dioxide, and blow past our international climate goals. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We are coming to you live from the 500 billion ton CO2 dash at the 2024 Carbon Bomb Olympics. Our competitors are lining up at the starting line, and boy, is it a beautiful day to emit some greenhouse gases. Let's hear it from one of our competitors. What is your strategy for today's race, Miss Julesburg Basin? You know me, I prefer the team-based approach. If I'm going to blow past international climate goals, I've got to have a strong squad behind me. It's always been a dream of mine to be a record-breaking carbon bomb. Just incredible stuff, folks. You heard it here first. Miss Basin and her fellow 194 carbon bombs will be competing in today's competition relay style in pursuit of that sweet, sweet 600 billion plus emission milestone, which, as we all know, would make carbon bomb history. I'll see you on the other side of those climate goals. Holy smokes, would you look at that, ladies and gentlemen. The Denver Julesburg Basin and her teammates are blowing past the planet's climate goals at explosive speeds. Here they come barreling down the track, and there it is, a stunning 646 billion tons of carbon dioxide emitted. We will be reading about these bombshells for centuries to come. As proud as the Denver Julesburg Basin's family would be of her for such a feat, I personally would not like to see her blow past our climate goals. What's really interesting about this carbon bomb, though, is the landscape of Colorado's economy. Most carbon bombs we cover are the primary or even sole economic engine of the region where they're located. But Colorado has one of the most diverse economies in the nation meaning it is not solely dependent on the oil and gas industry to create job opportunities and lower unemployment rates. Which is surprising, because you would think a bomb would make those industries the most booming, huh? 
high-tech, no, not that kind of high, industries such as telecommunications, software development, biotechnology, aerospace engineering, and advanced manufacturing thrive in the centennial state, and continually growing industries such as outdoor recreation, looking at you Rocky Mountains, and renewable energy production headline the future of this multifaceted economy. And in order to protect and preserve their natural artifacts, Colorado is actually looking to decrease their high volumes of air pollution stemming from oil and gas extraction and vehicle emissions. So much so that a month ago on July 7th, the Regional Air Quality Council voted to ban selling gas-powered lawn equipment. When it comes to lawn care... It is a common sight along the Denver skyline, but this thick layer of pollution isn't just caused by cars. Of course, um, cars and trucks are, are you know, really primary contributors to our, our poor air quality in the summer months. But lawn and garden equipment, um, topic of today's uh, Regional Air Quality Council board meeting. That meeting ending with a nearly unanimous vote yes. to ban the sale of gas-powered lawn equipment and require government agencies and commercial operators to make the switch to electric equipment over the next few years. It seems like an obvious, easy solution to lowering pollution. Full disclosure, my dad owns a lawn care company, so I am a puppet for big lawn, but the lawn part is really beside the point here. As you can see from this clip, Colorado is, as we speak, in the news for prioritizing their switch to renewable energy options to counteract the emissions caused by the automobile and lawn care industry. This mindset could mean the state is becoming a lot less interested in the DJ Basin and its oil and gas affiliates. There are already much more stringent regulations on oil and gas development in Colorado, and if the state is going so far as to ban lawn care equipment, I would not be surprised to see these regulations continue, especially when their economy can easily weather that type of clampdown as compared to other carbon bomb locations. So today, we'll discuss how the Denver-Julesburg Basin impacts the surrounding Colorado communities, what the economic and climate ramifications could be, and how Colorado and the rest of the United States might consider moving forward. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paralent Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash Promise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for DJ 101. <laughs> So you've caught the beat bug and want to dive into the electrifying world of DJing. Welcome aboard. DJing is the art of blending tracks, creating seamless transitions, and igniting the dance floor with the power of music. Whether you're looking to rock house parties or headline at major festivals... Wait, did... did we do the wrong DJ again? Okay, ChatGPT, one more strike and you're fired. Anyway, let's try that again. The 
Denver Julesburg Basin covers over 20,000 square miles, stretches into four total states across the U.S., and I personally think she has a beautiful smile. It comprises many fields and formations, including the Wattenberg, Neobrara, Codel, Greenhorn, and Adena fields, and the Hereford and Redtail areas. One of the most productive areas of the basin is the Wattenberg field, because it is home to significant reserves of shale oil and gas. The pores on my nose are also home to significant reserves of oil, but Colorado didn't care as much about that. Discovered in 1970, the Wattenberg field is located primarily in southwest Weld County, Colorado, and was one of the 15 largest gas fields in 2009 per the U.S. Energy Information Administration. To this day, the majority of oil production from the Wattenberg field has come via vertical drilling in those Neobrara and Codel formations I mentioned earlier, and the Muddy J Sandstone, which is a tight sands play below the Codel formation. The most prominent resource within the DJ Basin is light, sweet crude oil. Why does the consistency and taste of oil matter? Well, I tasted some before my buddies bothered to tell me that the sweetness in oil refers to crude oil that is extracted and found to contain low amounts of sulfur, making it a valuable and efficient source and not a delicious treat. Very disappointing, and we'll be taking my business back to Willy Wonka from now on. But this sweet sulfur lowers the yield of various refined petroleum products such as gasoline, diesel fuel, and plastics. And light oil is highly sought after due to requiring less time to process, while also producing a greater amount of gasoline and diesel than heavy oil. I also found this out the hard way after dipping some fresh bread into these light and heavy oils, hoping to be transported to an olive grove in Italy. I was transported to the ER instead. Since the DJ Basin is composed of hard-to-extract resources, it requires several different drilling techniques, depending on the location within the basin. With this in mind, the DJ Basin forces companies to utilize horizontal and vertical drilling. Now what does that look like? Vertical drilling is a technique that involves drilling vertically into the ground. In other words, it is the opposite of horizontal drilling. But you knew that, dear listener, because you are brilliant. Unlike horizontal drilling, vertical wells aim a narrow shaft under the surface well and into a reservoir located beneath it. Which is interesting, because when I think of aiming a narrow shaft under a surface well, I... No, come on, all I meant was... Okay, fine, I won't cancel myself. I already mentioned how the production up to this point from the Wattenberg field has been from vertical drilling, but since fracking burst onto the scene in 2009, oil and gas corporations have pivoted away from vertical drilling and put the majority of their capital into horizontal drilling and fracking. Conversely, in the case of horizontal drilling, it is a type of directional drilling that involves drilling a well and then turning your drill bit 90 degrees so that it faces horizontal. So, the opposite of vertical drilling. We're killing it today. 
A process that usually accompanies horizontal drilling is fracking, or hydraulic fracturing. Quick review, fracking involves injecting a mixture of water, sand, and chemicals into a well to break up the underground bedrock, ultimately freeing up oil reserves. Like a big, groundbreaking needle that frees the delicious, chocolatey liquid underneath. But it's not chocolate, like I said. I was very disappointed. That liquid that we inject into the ground is called fracking fluid. For this week's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Joseph Ryan, Professor of Environmental Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. That's right, the place from that Chainsmokers song with Halsey is a real thing. Here's Dr. Ryan talking a bit about the purpose of fracking fluid. Just to start off, you know, hydraulic fracturing fluids uh, is mostly water sand, and then a handful of chemicals that are put in to try to make the fracking process work better. One thing is you're trying to carry these sand grains down into the formation. And you could imagine if you put sand in water, the sand would all just quickly settle out to the bottom of your vessel. So one of the chemicals gets put in is to make the water more viscous and hold the sand and actually carry it through the oil and gas uh, drilling pipes all the way to the formation. And then once it gets there, you have to put some other chemicals down to break down the compounds that are making the water viscous because you want it all to get out um, and, and, and have the oil and gas uh, flow out after you remove these fracturing fluids. Um, so that's like the general purpose. And those chemicals in fracking fluid can create some problems. Dr. Ryan had a paper published in Environmental Science and Technology's Letters that was named to their 2015 Best of the Best edition. The research involved identifying concerning chemicals in the fracking fluid and the level to which they were making their way into groundwater. Here's Dr. Ryan giving some of the context for this issue. You know, typically there's talk about uh, only... 1% of the hydraulic fracturing fluid are these chemicals that are of concern, but um, some of the concentrations that uh, are added could be considered hazardous. And that was a big question. Over the past decade, there's been some ability to start to look at this from the website that the uh, oil and gas operators uh, had the Groundwater Protection Council create. It's called Frack Focus, and you can go to Frack Focus and look up the ingredients in every frack job that's been done in different states across the United States. By the way, that's another difference from state to state. Some states require that operators put their frack job ingredients into Frack Focus. Other states, it's just voluntary. But the oil and gas operators have seemed to participate participated uh, quite well in getting their data in there. So. When people were worried about what's in hydraulic fracturing fluid and whether or not that's going to get into anybody's drinking water supply, there was a lot of focus on potentially toxic compounds that were in there. And those chemicals can be a variety of things. For instance, on January 31st, 2022, the Physicians for Social Responsibility, or PSR, released a damning report presenting unpublicized evidence that energy firms have used a class of extremely toxic chemicals known as PFAS, which we've done an episode on, in Colorado oil and gas wells since at least 2008. Sick burn, you guys. 
PSR's research found evidence that both fluorosurfactant and polytetrafluoroethylene, or PTFE, were used during extraction. And if you ever need help remembering polytetrafluoroethylene, just sing the song. Polytetrafluoroethylene, that name is my name too. Whenever you go drink, you better stop to think that there's polytetrafluoroethylene. Da 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 da. Full disclosure, there was a point in kindergarten where I genuinely thought my name was Ethan Jacob Jingleheimer Brown. Not even a joke. Abrupt segue aside, exposure to fluorosurfactants could lead to increased risk in testicular and kidney cancer, cause abnormally high cholesterol, decreased antibody response, and reduced infant and fetal growth. While I'm not a scientist myself, I can conclude that those are not things you want happening to your body. To make matters worse, fluorosurfactants may pose an even greater health and environmental risk than PTFE because they are more soluble in water, making them more mobile in water and soil. I mean, they get around easier than that guy you used to date in college. PTFEs, on the other hand, are the scientific term for Teflon. They do not break down easily. You can say their genes make them look fat and they'll just smile at you. And because of that, PTFEs accumulate over time in the environment. They've also been linked to long-term health problems such as ovarian, testicular, prostate, and bladder cancer. Again, things you generally do not want to happen to you as long as you're not a masochist. And you're probably wondering, but Ethan, if fracking fluid is being injected thousands of feet into the ground, how would people come in contact with these chemicals? Well, I had that question too, and here's Dr. Ryan explaining a bit about how these chemicals can actually make their way up into the groundwater. All right, so we zoom into this area, Wattenberg Field in in the Denver-Julesburg Basin in sort of northeastern Colorado, and there are a couple of aquifers that almost everybody uses. When they drill their water well down, they go down to an aquifer called the Laramie Fox Hills, and um, so that would be what you'd want to focus on in terms of transport. And we tried to pick some, in that paper you mentioned, we tried to pick some numbers that would be representative of how transport would happen in that aquifer with the idea that we weren't really paying a lot of attention to how the release of the fracturing fluids could occur. We were looking at, say, if they do get released and start to move through the aquifer horizontally to somebody's water well, that's what we were trying to uh, uh, simulate in our assessment of the different uh, mobilities of the chemicals in the fracturing fluid. In particular, to, to get in on the process of that, most of these chemicals, as they're moving through an aquifer, they're going to, to some extent, going to stick to the sediments. And the sediment property that's most important for whether or not they stick is how much organic matter is in the sediments. And the organic matter is just the residual uh, hydrocarbon, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, uh, breakdown of plant and animal material that gets incorporated into uh, sediments that get deposited millions of years ago and still have not yet broken down. So if you look at the Laramie Fox Hills, maybe this is an estimate or a range, but maybe a tenth of a percent up to maybe a half of a percent of the mass of the sediments is organic matter. 
And the more organic matter, the better it is at grabbing onto any chemicals that might be moving past, right? So that was like a that was like a key factor in trying to simulate what the mobility was, picking a number for how much organic matter is in this Laramie Fox Hills aquifer. Because there are large amounts of organic matter within these sediments in the Laramie Fox Hills aquifer, fracking fluid will stick to the sediment property. It then ends up polluting the aquifer, severely fracking up the surrounding communities who depend on the aquifer for drinking water, agricultural practices, and daily household activities. But here's where this gets interesting, and in my view, why Dr. Ryan's research was so important. PSR also concluded that between 2011 and 2021, the oil and gas companies claimed trade secret privileges in more than 12,000 wells across 31 Colorado counties. What does that mean? Essentially, each fossil fuel company creates their own blend of chemicals in their fracking fluid. They're not going to publicize which chemicals are in there, because then other companies could copy them, and that sort of defeats the purpose of having a free and fair market. You want companies to be competing with each other. It's like if every fast food pizza joint were required to release their recipe, then pretty quickly Domino's would just copy Sbarro and drive them out of business, which wouldn't be very fair, because Sbarro worked hard to work their way into every train station basement in the tri-state area. As such, it's pretty common for companies to claim certain chemicals as trade secrets, and while that's understandable, it does become a problem when they're a contaminant like PFAS that's ending up in the groundwater. So what Dr. Ryan and his colleagues did in their fracking fluid study that was so... groundbreaking... Anyone? Come on, that was a good one. But what they did is figure out some of these chemicals of concern. There's some compounds we don't know exactly what they are. But for the ones we do know, uh, we can we, we went through that exercise and basically made a table of um, showing which compounds would get to the well, uh, get to somebody's water well fast, fast enough to be a problem, having not broken down along the way, haven't actually moved and not stuck to the sediments in between. And and then look at the toxic ones. And we came up with a list of like the 15 compounds that would get there the fastest and be the most uh, concern in terms in terms of toxicity. And I guess what we hoped was that uh, that would be a guideline for changing what was measured in water wells to see if there was a problem. That those should be the target compounds that you should look at. Those should be like the the tracers or the you know the the first arrivals uh, that we pay the most attention to. In other words, even if oil and gas companies won't tell us everything, we can still measure some stuff. And to have this list of chemicals of particular concern is really, really valuable. But it's not just water contamination that's a concern. It's also water use. A lot of times people were saying hydro hydraulic fracturing is using too much water. Uh, and, you know, and we're up to like uh, tens of millions of gallons of water per well as the horizontal distance of the horizontal drilling has increased. The numbers came out to something like one to two percent of the water 
was being used in oil and gas development. Now, if you take that one to two percent, you know, compare it to the hundred percent, that doesn't really seem like that much for, you know, as consumers for the for we're creating a demand for fossil fuels still, and so that's would I think most people would say, yeah, let's use that water to do that because I want to drive my car, I want to heat my house, right? But if you flipped it around and said, okay, you got that ninety percent of the water that's kind of hard piped into agriculture. Now that 2% is part of the 10%, and that starts to become like a significant amount of water. And you start thinking like, that's that's too much. There's actually efforts right now to try to force oil and gas operators to recycle more uh, water and cut down or eliminate their intake of fresh water or um, of uh, of new water into the system. You know, because still so much of the water that they use ends up coming out of their wells, getting trucked to deep well injection sites and pumped back down even deeper than they're getting the oil and gas out. Right. So it's kind of like it's like taking that water out of the hydrologic cycle. And that that bothers people. And I think that that would be something that affects availability of water if we start to project you know what a real drought situation could could bring because agriculture will still have its you know first in time first rights for water use and that means that the municipalities and industry and so on have to uh, compete for what's left over and oil and gas will can pay a lot more for water than anybody else uh, thinks they should have to pay for water and that's a really interesting point as we discussed earlier Colorado's economy has a lot going on, more so than most other carbon bombs we talk about, and that can make an impact like water use a lot less noticeable. I mean, water use for Colorado's oil and gas industry gets even less attention than theater camp. Seriously, why did Barbieheimer fully overshadow theater camp? Why have I not seen theater camp yet? Who wants to come see theater camp with me? Colorado is currently drought-free, but it has seen its fair share of droughts and will continue to, so it's very important to be aware of where there's room to save water. Oil and gas is certainly one industry that can do that. But water isn't the only source of issues at the DJ Basin. Air pollution from fracking and drilling practices have contributed to Colorado's hazy skies, for one, the DJ Basin is not only considered a carbon bomb, but a methane bomb, with the potential to release 18.2 million tons of methane over the project's lifetime under reasonable leakage assumptions. Beyond methane, the DJ Basin is also a major source of nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds. Volatile organic compound was the pet name my teachers gave me as a kid, so this has me a little choked up. Now I know, air pollution at a carbon bomb is nothing new, and you guys didn't tune in for a rerun, but the air pollution in the DJ Basin has been particularly concerning because of the region's unique geography and weather patterns which trap pollutants close to the ground. During hot summer nights, mid-July when you and I were forever wild, just kidding, this has nothing to do with Lana Del Rey, 
But on summer nights, there is air flowing downslope from the Rocky Mountains to the foothills and plains of the Front Range, and in the morning, the sun heats up the ground and causes the upslope airflows. This creates a circular pattern, resulting in pollution from one day getting blown into the mountains, only to be blown back into the Front Range the following night. Vicious cycle, am I right? These wind patterns contribute significantly to the pollution settling and accumulating in the valleys and on the Front Range, which is where the majority of Colorado's population calls home. This is also heavily impacting natural tourist attractions, such as Rocky Mountain National Park, by limiting the visibility of park visitors and spurring on harmful precipitation events such as acid rain. In fact, researchers estimate that current pollutant levels are 60% higher than the park's ecosystem can sustain. This phenomenon can also be seen with ground-level ozone, which is created when nitrogen dioxide mixes with VOCs, becoming a chemical casserole baked by the hot sun. The perfect treat for that summer potluck you have next week. Scientists are now learning that this ground-level ozone peaks in the afternoon and doesn't dissipate as much in Colorado as they originally presumed due to these weather patterns. This is a natural occurrence, but is obviously made a lot worse by the oil and natural gas development in Colorado. There are multiple variables within well development that cause harmful emissions, from the heavy equipment used at the site and vehicle traffic, to the power generation, drilling operations, spillage and evaporation of fracking fluid, flowback of the extracted petroleum products, flaring, and fugitive or controlled hydrocarbon emissions during loading and transportation. I just submitted that list to Billy Joel for use in a reboot of his We Didn't Start the Fire. Emissions also arise from fracking fluid additives, controlled venting, and leakage of equipment, storage tanks, and pipelines. According to an article published by the Colorado Sun on April 11, 2023, air emissions and water demands have skyrocketed, as 72% of the new Colorado oil and gas projects revolve around the Front Range. Industry estimates show that compared to 2022, there was a projected increase in emissions during front range drilling and hydrofracturing. In specific, emissions of nitrogen oxides increased 30% to 8.3 tons per well, while VOC emissions rose 40% to 2.1 tons per well. While that's a whole lot of numbers that might be hard to make sense of, this became so much of a concern that in 2022, the Front Range was designated by the EPA as a, quote, severe non-attainment area, or somewhere where the health standard of 70 parts per billion of ozone in the air was continually exceeded. I mean, call these air pollutants Freddie Mercury because you can't stop them now. Sorry, back to business. How about the economy? Well, if there's one thing Colorado has done well, it's boast a diverse economy. In fact, US News & World Report ranked Colorado as having the third best economy in the country, behind only Utah and Idaho. Which, really? Mormons and potatoes? Between 2009 and 2018, Colorado's average annual GDP growth was 3.5%, one of the highest growth rates in the nation, and 1.2% higher than the national average. 
And according to Inc. Magazine, Colorado is home to 156 of the 5,000 fastest growing companies, the fourth highest concentration in the United States. The DJ Basin does contribute a little bit to that success. It was the fifth largest producing basin in the U.S. in 2020, with an average daily production of 510,000 barrels of oil and 5.1 billion cubic feet of natural gas. Natural gas gatekeep girl boss, I guess. It has also led to the creation of significant infrastructure, including pipelines, refineries, and other facilities. However, Colorado's oil and gas industry has brought a significant amount of volatility as well. It's like your girlfriend's mood when she forgot to eat breakfast and just had a venti iced coffee. In the 1980s, there was a sharp decline in oil prices that led to a significant drop in oil production at the basin. During this time, many small and medium-sized producers were forced out of the business, causing production levels in the basin to fall by more than 40%. Additionally, during the global financial crisis of 2008-09, the DJ Basin saw its oil prices drop from $140 a barrel in July 08 to under $40 a barrel by the end of that year. And while I'm sure Donkey Kong was thrilled to buy barrels at those prices, it's difficult for the oil companies to handle those major economic losses. More recently, the COVID-19 pandemic hit the DJ Basin hard. It averaged 53 drilling rigs in 2019, and then decreased to an average of 17 rigs, a 68% drop in 2020. And while other basins in the U.S. have increased their rig count post-pandemic, the DJ Basin has still not fully recovered. As of July 28, the DJ Basin had 14 active oil rigs, far below other high-profile basins such as the Permian Basin's 334 active oil rigs, Eagle Ford's 55 active rigs, and Haynesville's 44 active rigs. At this rate, the DJ Basin's only chance to recover might be a heart-wrenching PSA. Hi, I'm Sarah McLaughlin. Will you be an angel for a helpless basin? Every day, innocent basins are neglected just for being unprofitable, and they're crying out for help. Please, call the number on your screen and join the DJ Basin with a monthly gift right now. For just 10 oil rigs a month, only a third of an oil rig a day, you'll help rescue basins from their economic volatility and provide more air pollution, more water pollution, and love. Call or join online in the next 30 minutes and you'll receive this welcome kit with a photo of an oil CEO crying because he can't afford a rig. One who's been given a second chance thanks to you. Right now, there's a basin that needs you. Your call says, I'm here to help. Please call right now. I'm not crying, you are. But it's not just the DJ Basin's post-recession struggles that present concern. Experts are also concerned about the lack of available inventory currently left in the DJ Basin. I mean, they're even considering pulling a Michael Scott and taking a trip to Sandals, Jamaica so they can skip inventory. According to a 2023 BTU Analytics report, the DJ Basin has slightly over 11,000 undrilled locations. 
If all of the low-cost inventory is drilled first, it is projected that less than three years' worth of sub-$50 break-even wells remain in the DJ Basin. In other words, a lot of the oil and gas left in the basin just isn't profitable. And again, with Colorado's incredibly diverse economy, oil and gas producers aren't going to get the same kinds of handouts they might be able to procure elsewhere. The industry isn't the bedrock of the region, and if it can't cut it on its own, then it might just not have much of a future. At least that's what its therapist has been trying to say. So is Colorado's economy headed for extinction? Of course not. The recreational marijuana industry is alive and well, and this is but a mere Rocky Mountain low. In our next segment, we'll explore how climate change fits into all this mumbo-jumbo, policies and regulations that Colorado could consider, and some, quote, greener alternatives to the DJ Basin. And no, we are not referring to marijuana when we say green alternatives. If that's what you're here for, please visit Colorado independently. Do you feel like your breakfast experience is missing the charm of bumping into several people at any given time? Then a Continental Breakfast is for you. With a Continental Breakfast, you can enjoy a spread of concerningly chewy foods with a tall glass of watery milk. Still not sold? You'll get to soak in the unique ambiance of a hotel lobby at 8 a.m., the clanging metal pans that every hot food is stored in, the Sunsetter awning infomercials on the TV, and the screaming child who's about to spill milk and cereal all over you. Continental breakfast. Those powdered eggs aren't gonna barf themselves up! The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash So where do we go from here? First off, it's important to note the unique opportunity that Colorado has. While a lot of carbon bomb regions are extremely reliant on that oil and gas for their economy, Colorado isn't. I think there has been, compared to other states, there's been an effort to try to minimize the state's dependence on oil and gas as part of the economy. I don't know that I've seen a good unbiased review of how important oil and gas is. It's usually the reviews that do come out are uh, seem to come uh, from analyses that are funded by oil and gas to try to highlight their importance. And so there's some skepticism about their claims. And Ethan, let me add in one other thing. We have noticed as we go around to try to check on other states for potential availability of data to analyze the same way we for what we've analyzed in Colorado, is that states, other states, I'll give New Mexico as an example. It seems like New Mexico's state budget depends a lot more on the revenue from oil and gas than Colorado's does. And so there's that that pressure develops that the state wants to regulate oil and gas, but they also recognize that their state budget depends on oil and gas to a greater extent than some other states. That conflict is in mind as they figure out to what extent they want to regulate. And that's really important context. Every incentive here is in line with Colorado pursuing a cleaner path forward, not just to address the local environmental and economic issues mentioned earlier, but to address climate change too. 
Due to large-scale droughts across the Colorado region, the mountains of Colorado have less snowpack available, leading to snowpack melt. This is detrimental to the mountains, since they receive nearly half of their annual precipitation in the form of snow, and the lack of snow makes them feel quite naked. Don't look, guys. No, stop it, seriously. It's embarrassing. The state also relies on consistent snowfall to power its ski season and fill mountain springs with water for farms and residents. Without this snowpack, Gwyneth Paltrow loses out on valuable lawsuit-creating time, as there aren't any skiers to plow into. How did we do two Gwyneth Paltrow jokes in one week? That's the real reason why we're back to two episodes per week. The timing of snowmelt and peak runoff have already begun to shift to earlier in the spring by one to four weeks compared to the previous 30-year average. These shorter and warmer winters are also negatively affecting their outdoor recreation economy. Ice climbing and skiing are integral activities that fund Colorado's diverse economy, but because of the warmer winters, typical ice climbing routes at places such as the Silver Cascade are becoming more and more unpredictable. As someone with negative hand-eye coordination, you already couldn't pay me to do any of that stuff, but with even slippier slopes, it's a hard pass. Additionally, the projections for snowpack aren't looking promising either. Colorado's spring snowpack is projected to decline for the mid-21st century because of the increasing temperatures as a result of climate change. Extreme droughts aren't only impacting snowpack, but water availability as well. A climate change consequence with more than one implication? What a plot twist! The Colorado River System is a source of water for agricultural and residential purposes to more than 33 million people across six states and Mexico. Since 2000, Colorado has been experiencing regular droughts, but since the state population is expected to double within the next 40 to 50 years, the intensive ongoing water consumption paired with the current climate crisis is a recipe for disaster. The name's Disaster. Climate Disaster. I like my river shaken, not stirred. This lack of available water also has significant economic implications. According to a 2014 analysis by Arizona State University's Seidman Institute, the anticipated direct loss for the state of Colorado was estimated at more than 1.1 million jobs and approximately $60.5 billion in labor income. Climate change has also contributed to extreme heat waves, which in Colorado have been compounded by the urban heat island effect. Heat islands are not enclaves reserved specifically for watching Melissa McCarthy movies, but urbanized areas that experience higher temperatures than outlying areas where structures such as buildings, roads, and other infrastructure absorb and re-emit the sun's heat more than natural landscapes such as forests and water bodies. Since Colorado is home to urban epicenters such as Denver, these areas are experiencing the worst of the heat island effect. It really makes you wonder why Denver chose to build all their roads out of cast iron skillets. This increase in heat can also result in serious illness and death, making infants and young children, people over 65, residents of low-income neighborhoods, and outdoor workers increasingly vulnerable to illnesses resulting from heat stress, which stresses me out. 
Increases in temperature can also reduce the air quality by increasing the formation of ground-level ozone, which again, the DJ Basin has worsened. Overall, just not an environmental cocktail I'd like to be sipping on. These toasty and arid conditions caused by climate change can also increase the amount and intensity of wildfires across the Rockies. That's right, there's more! In 2020, the largest wildfires in the state's history ravaged through the mountains, burning a total of 665,454 acres. The Cameron Peak Fire torched 208,913 acres all on its own within the Arapaho and Roosevelt National Forests, as well as Rocky Mountain National Park. This fire holds the title of the largest wildfire Colorado has ever witnessed, destroying approximately 470 structures. The only reason for that is because I have not yet visited Colorado for more than a day, in which case I would be the hottest thing the state has ever seen. I actually didn't write that joke. I guess I know who my favorite comedy writer is now. The East Troublesome Fire, which may be the most fitting wildfire name I've ever heard, also annihilated 193,812 acres and jumped the Continental Divide, reaching the western end of Estes Park. These devastating wildfires also negatively impact the Colorado River. When widespread wildfires happen, the soil burned is much more readily eroded into the river's streams, watersheds, and reservoirs, thereby decreasing the water quality available for Coloradoans and the other surrounding biotic communities. Given that these wildfires are forecasted to increase in intensity, these damages in water source costs could potentially skyrocket. And by potentially, we mean probably. But the good news is, especially as it pertains to the oil and gas industry, Colorado has a huge leg up. For one, they've already placed several regulations on fracking fluid. In fact, this year, Colorado passed legislation in this regard. In January, they passed a new law that one will require chemical manufacturers to certify that their products used in downhole oil and gas production don't contain PFAS, and two, to list every chemical they use in their operations and make it available to the public. That's right, no more secret ingredients. Now you can't sneak peanut butter into the barbecue sauce and claim it's a thickener when really you just hate us allergy kids. But that second thing is a really significant crackdown. I'm not sure to what degree these oil and gas companies care to know what each other are doing with regard to fracking fluid recipes, but it will be very interesting to see how this policy plays out. And they didn't stop there. In June, Colorado passed another law banning the unnecessary use of PFAS and became the first state in the country to apply such a ban to oil and gas extraction. And I must say, you know something's bad if Colorado's banning it. I mean, it's legal to have magic mushrooms in Colorado, but not PFAS. I don't know if PFAS has considered therapy or meditation or something, but I think it's time to look in the mirror. Now, hearing all of this, I was curious if regulating fracking fluid to this extreme would lead to a situation where companies had to choose if they wanted to stay in Colorado and have their recipes go public, or leave Colorado to keep their secret ingredients in-house. It seemed to me at first like this could have some serious ramifications for the industry. But according to Dr. Ryan, it may not be as big an inconvenience as it sounds like. I would say that, first of all, the 
composition of the hydraulic fracturing fluid. Now, this is something I don't know about as an expert, but uh, but I know it does vary from oil and gas basin to oil and gas basin. So you're trying to tune your hydraulic fracturing fluid to work the best in, in the ge geology of the basin that you're uh, drilling in. And so there would be some natural variability from location to location, from state to state, depending on which oil and gas basin you're in. So I, I think they're already fine-tuning their recipes to particular locations and having to adapt to one state's regulations versus another state would in no way put them out of business, um, you know, in some other state because they're trying to do something more restricted uh, in Colorado versus in Texas or North Dakota. The recipes are easy to change. And I don't think that the difference in state regulations doesn't keep anybody out of the game. It just change in recipe, tweaking to fit both what is best for the geology and what fits what the state would allow. Most states don't really have any uh, regulations on it either, other than the, there are some you know, federal regulations that go all the way back to 2005, what was dubbed the, uh, the, the Cheney loophole in, in negotiating the ability of oil and gas operators to get around some compounds that were uh, restricted use in the Safe Drinking Water Act with the assumption that they're using them at such great depths that it would never get into anybody's drinking water. But that we know that didn't quite happen in all cases. There, there certainly are cases where water quality is affected by nearby oil and gas. And that was definitely really helpful for me to understand. It's like a bakery. You can make your cupcakes with magic mushrooms in them in Colorado, but not in New Jersey. You could always put PFAS in your cupcakes in New Jersey, though, so you can still get the health impacts. But it's just a small tweak to the recipe. You don't have to throw everything out the window. And that gets to what is maybe a bigger point here, which is that each state does have agency. And in Colorado, between the regulations and the data collection from experts like Dr. Ryan, there may be good opportunities for other states to watch and learn a little bit. I think one important thing in the topic of oil and gas development is that uh, regulations go state by state. And Colorado has been a state that uh, has taken a lot more proactive approach to trying to regulate oil and gas development, especially in recent years. And as you do go from state to state, trying to do things like uh, try to evaluate to what extent regulations have had a good or not so good effect on protecting public health, you often find that you want to look up data. Colorado has done this amazing job of collecting data. Data that we've been looking at was whether or not water wells, uh, water supply systems near oil and gas development have been affected by oil and gas development. Uh, in a project that we finished a few years ago that was funded by the National Science Foundation, we had a much broader scope too. We were uh, doing a lot of work on air quality as well. But my focus, uh, my research has been more on the on the water side. And again, that's not to say Colorado has the perfect policies, but they're putting some options on display. Colorado's ambitious goals include striving to cut the oil and gas industry's ozone pollution by 30% by 2025 and 50% by 2030, and to limit freshwater use in oil and gas operations to a maximum of 25% of total water use by 2027 and a maximum of 10% by 2030. In addition to the regulations from this year, 
In 2019, a Senate bill was signed into law that altered the well-permitting process, making economies of scale advantageous as operators sought to capitalize on a well-batching clause, thereby causing operators to consolidate. And in 2022, the Colorado House introduced HB 23-1294, which would penalize producers for emissions violations that occur during system startup, shutdown, and malfunctions. Obviously, an increase in regulations and sanctions could further challenge the financial stability of the DJ Basin, but again, that's kind of what we have the opportunity to learn here, right? Colorado's trying out a variety of things. What works? What doesn't? What can they do better? Are their parents proud of them, or are they just going to act all distant? And what can other states do to either follow their lead or learn from any missteps to do it even better. Beyond policy, there are many technological advancements being made by a bunch of people more smarter than me. In the fracking area, there is an alternative referred to as liquefied petroleum gas fracturing. LPG fracturing replaces water with carbon dioxide, nitrogen, or propane, and is ideal for rock and shale formations that require low pressures. Traditional water-based fracking that we talked about earlier typically creates wastewater that can seep into aquifers, but the LPG technique allows gases to escape the ground far easier without needing to remove and treat injected water. Since Colorado fits this description and is running into water issues as we mentioned earlier, this could be an interesting option. But this alternative isn't without its drawbacks. Although petroleum is expensive when compared to water, there are new techniques being developed that would allow companies to capture and reuse the gases used in LPG fracturing, thus reducing the associated costs. Kind of like when you fart in an enclosed space and eventually that gas makes it back into your system when you inhale. The circle of life is beautiful. <laughs> Another alternative to fracking comes in the form of foam-based fracturing. This method uses small amounts of water, a foaming agent, as well as carbon dioxide and nitrogen, and is proven to be effective in places that have low reservoir pressure, making it hard to extract water from the well. Think of those drunken foam pits you see people enjoy while spring breaking in Cancun, but with a purpose. Actually, a study was done by the Department of Energy in the 1970s that found foam-based fracturing decreases water use by 75-90%. to 90%. The practice has decreased in frequency over the years because it requires higher pressures, but since water shortages, particularly in Colorado, are starting to become more and more prevalent, it could be a useful method for Colorado. Channel fracturing technology is another fracking dupe that combines geochemical modeling, intermittent sand pumping, and degradable fibers and fluids. This well simulation method promotes the formation of stable voids, serving as highly conductive channels for transport of oil and gas. Wait, I think that needs some music. <laughs> This well-stimulation method promotes the formation of stable voids, serving as highly conductive channels for transport of oil. <laughs> Never mind, that was a bad idea. The final alternative to fracking that is worth mentioning is pad drilling, which no, is not when your girlfriend asks you for pads but you're too embarrassed to walk down that aisle of CVS, so you set up an oil rig to extract the pads from 5,000 feet away. 
Pad drilling involves drilling at several points into wells from a single surface location, allowing up to 20 or more wells to be drilled from a single location. If implemented, it could reduce the drilling cycle time, thus lowering the operation costs of the wells, while also decreasing the amount of access roads that need to be built and constructed, and requiring fewer trucks to carry the materials. Isn't that... swell? Although none of these alternatives are perfect solutions to fracking, it will still emit carbon, implementing alternative energy sources and fluids into future fracking endeavors can help lower the overall fossil fuel emissions and grow different sectors of Colorado's economy. Beyond making fracking cleaner, Colorado can also continue its rapid transition toward cleaner energy sources. Given the fact that Colorado has so many different industries, I spoke with Dr. Ryan about where he thinks Colorado plays into the country's energy transition, and if he thinks Colorado might have an easier time transitioning than other places. Here's what he had to say. Could you increase the regulation to such an extent that oil and gas development would just be unfavorable, too expensive? And, and yes, I believe you could. I'm not sure my personal feeling about that is I'd, I'd rather see us work harder on on the consumer side, uh, cutting down demand, trying to convince people or give people incentives to do things that would reduce our uh, fossil fuel consumption, more electric vehicles, more electric appliances. Uh, at power plants, we have a lot better chance of uh, reducing carbon emissions than we do in, uh, in, you know, in a home boiler or, or in a, a car or a truck. So what is our research doing? I, I think we're, on our side, we're trying to use information that's out there, like in this database in Colorado, to the extent we could, we, back when we had our National Science Foundation funding, we were making our own measurements too, on the air quality side and on the water quality side. But it's so widespread that a small effort, like one National Science Foundation funded research project couldn't really make all that many measurements on its own. So it was really, it really did morph into where could we get data that was already collected and see what the effects were? And what we're trying to do is try to improve regulations while oil and gas development is still a thing, not to make it something that we can live with because we should be making that transition to renewables, but because it is happening and we wanna know what its effects are and how to protect public health in between. And fortunately, as demand lowers for fossil fuel products, the clean energy industry appears poised to pounce. In fact, according to Geology Inn, the DJ Basin has some of the best capacity in the country for large-scale economically feasible geothermal power production. What an honor. In particular, the high population areas of Denver and the Golden Fault along the front range of the Rocky Mountain are drawing the most interest because they already have the costly infrastructure in place. Geothermal plants are viewed by many energy and corporate executives as a steadier, on-demand source of electricity through pumping steam or hot water from wells hundreds of thousands of feet underground to power turbines. This is why many believe geothermal projects can work in tandem with wind and solar farms, whose production can vary based on weather conditions or time of day. It is also important to note that geothermal projects decrease the land use conflicts that are associated with some other energy sources, as their overall footprint comes primarily from underground. 
This could produce reliable power without threatening the agriculture industry and natural artifacts within Colorado. Another reason Colorado has the potential to dominate in geothermal is that the U.S. potential for power generation relies on underground permeable rock with fractures that contain hot fluid, which can only be found in western states. This particular industry has drawn significant interest from even oil and gas companies who see the potential to convert their existing fossil fuel wells into geothermal sites and transition their drilling expertise, equipment, and workforce to these clean energy projects. Of course, with geothermal energy, there are trade-offs. Geothermal drilling has raised some environmental concerns, including the depletion of underground reservoirs and increased risk of earthquakes. Geothermal projects are also more expensive than any other renewables. But supporters argue that wind and solar were once that way, and now they're cheaper than the cheapest fossil fuel alternatives in many, many cases. You win some, you lose some. And Colorado is trying to change that lack of government support for geothermal. Earlier this year, the state's administration proposed bills including a clean firm standard that would direct utilities to invest in dispatchable low-carbon generation, such as geothermal. If this is indicative of legislative decisions to come, business may be booming for geothermal and renewable energy resources in the state of Colorado. Look. I know that the hazy Denver skies and incessant noise pollution associated with fracking and drilling can be overwhelming and frustrating. This episode probably raised your blood pressure by a couple points. But seeing how there are already governmental actions and a proactive economic strategy positioned to buckle down on the issues of air pollution and water availability, not to mention diversify the economy while they're at it, I think there are not only reasons to be encouraged and optimistic, but reasons to hope other states look to Colorado for guidance. If we can continue making steps in the right direction, explore new technologies, and ensure these actions continue to boost Colorado's economy, we'll help the climate, reduce air and water pollution, and maybe, if we're lucky, find some kind of Colorado oil that actually tastes sweet like its name suggests. Still not happy about that naming choice. This wraps up episode 125 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Fox 31 Denver. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week for our next Wednesday Tip of the Iceberg, breaking down the Maui fires. So that is very important. Very excited to talk about that with you. I will see you then.